0: Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel major And this podcast comes after a little uh, delay here while I've been gathering my forces. I wanted to do this podcast for a while, uh, this subject matter, and I wanted to make sure I had the very best information. Sleep is something which is so important. It's so critical to our everyday lives, whether we're on the boat or off the boat. It has such huge impacts on our mental and physiological health, I wanted to make sure I had the most up-to-date information to be able to share with you, which could then help you to make the best possible decisions in terms of your own and your crew's welfare. So we'll kick this off by just describing something very odd that happened to me last night. Um, finish, finish my day and then seemed to enter this strange and lurid mental state Uh, basically I was psychotic, I was hallucinating, I saw all sorts of things that could never be. Uh, I was delusional, I believed things that were physically impossible. Uh, I was completely disorientated, I thought I was in a different place, and uh, even that I was a different person and not in my bedroom at all. And I was uh, completely unable to process my emotions, feeling all sorts of crazy things, very strong emotions with no control over them at all. And uh, at the end of it, I fell into unconsciousness And when I finally came round, hours later, I could barely remember any of it. What is that mental state? Well, we all know it. It's sleeping. It's sleeping and dreaming. And it's that weird state that we go into for nearly one third of our living existence. Sleep is a critical part of what it is to be human. And I think it's something which certainly when I reflect on my own education as a child, as an adolescent, as a young person in my 20s and 30s. I had a particular view of what uh, sleep is, uh, a view which is very much uh, pressed into me by a naive educational system, by a, an educational system that didn't have all the information, and by that other great source of information we have about the world, the media, and the things that are created to entertain us and keep us stuffing popcorn into our faces those sources are not up to date, those sources are not realistic and they're not giving us a fair view of what's going on. I wanted in this podcast to put forward to you some information that may well be new to you but isn't really new in sleep study world and give you a grounding in quite how important sleep can be. The first thing we have to understand about sleep is that it is critically necessary. We talk a lot in the modern uh, scientific world about this principle of uh, survival of the fittest and that each part of our physiology as as humans, our instincts, uh, the way that we go about things, all of it has been hardwired into us by the progression of millions of years of development from the simplest creatures through to the most complex aspects of our culture today it's all there for a reason there's no fat on the bone when it comes to nature nothing occurs that is not absolutely helping us to move forwards towards uh, a better destiny for ourselves individually or more particularly for our species if we ain't out there reproducing hunting uh, and, and and bringing up our young and and pr- keeping the species going Uh, that that activity, that action, that um, characteristic will very quickly be dropped from the gene pool. And yet we all engage, if we do it correctly, in seven to nine hours of sleep each night, which effectively stops us from hunting, stops us from defending ourselves, puts us into a state where we are critically uh, susceptible to hunters coming after us, other predators, and yet All mammalian animals do this pretty much in the same kind of um, uh, method that we do, whether they're awake at night and sleeping on the day or whether sleeping at night and awake in the day as we are. But each animal takes a decent percentage of its existence and pours it into sleep. And while sleeping, engages in the same kind of sleep levels that humans do. So why would it be that this thing is so important if it puts us at such a disadvantage? Some of the things that I have come across and I have actually perpetuated in my own way uh, during my career at sea is a kind of um, sleep machismo, kind of like a hero style. And actually, you know what? I'm, I'm a big fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've got a lot of respect for a lot of the things that he's achieved. But one of his rules is that you have to like uh, sleep faster, that, uh, you know, you, six hours sleep is like all you need and then you should be able to. and bust out success for the next 18 hours of the day. Every single part of sleep research that's been done um, during the period of time that Arnold Schwarzenegger has been a household name has absolutely categorically uh, shown that that is completely and utterly wrong. And we unfortunately live in a world now where too much of the stuff that's inside our heads is of equal weighting in terms of facts, even though one comes from someone who is, in this case, a bodybuilder, a movie star, and a, and a statesman, and the others coming from people that are pouring their entire working careers into one thing, which is sleep research. The quality of the information coming from the sleep researchers is they're not on like some secret kind of mission to, to get people to sleep more so they've got more work. They're just sharing the facts with us. And those facts are that sleep is absolutely imperative if we are to live healthy and long lives. The whole thing of sleep when you're dead, which is a phrase that I used to use quite a lot, is a, now how did he put it? Uh, A mortally unwise piece of advice. Okay, now, who is he? Who am I referring to here? I'm referring to the sleep researcher, Matthew Walker who's been someone who's been instrumental in the last couple of years of bringing this stuff out he did a, a Joe Rogan podcast which I uh I listened to it a couple of years ago and then um ended up uh I, I think kind of kind of building it into my everyday life but it was only because of this podcast that I'm doing now that I chose to go back and really look at it all again and 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 cement for myself like is this real is this not real is this just a set of opinions I do some wider research and i discovered that what matthew walker has been sharing in his book uh and on the podcast and all the other multimedia things that he's been doing is the absolute best facts we have available now sleep when you're dead which is that you know something i've thrown around a lot come on boys sleep when you're dead uh it's a really really crappy piece of advice It has been shown empirically, tangibly, in repeated results uh, and in uh, epidemiological studies where millions of people have been surveyed over decades about their sleep habits and then their health outcomes have been monitored. Those people who sleep shorter live shorter lives. There is a direct and unswerving correlation between the fact that if you don't sleep uh, the proper amount then you die earlier. <laughs> it's just that simple. And uh, I know what's happening here. When I first got this information, when I was first watching the Joe Rogan podcast with um, with Matthew Walker, and my first feeling was, well, yeah, for most people, but obviously, I'm not most people I, I do something which is, you know, qu- quite a long way outside of the normal for most folks. And because of that, I am, uh, I'm proving that, you know, I have Something different. I've got something more than other folks. Matthew Walker points out that they are aware that there's a gene which uh, can allow for some people to sleep about five hours a night and and survive on that without too many negative uh, outcomes. Uh, If you want to know if you're uh, in that group of people, as he puts it, if you take the number of people within the population who have the necessary gene makeup to survive on that little Uh, sleep if you take that number and you round it to the nearest whole number the percentage of the population with that gene is zero (laughs) so whatever kind of aspirations you had that you're you're the one uh -uh, it's not you yeah there's like one in many millions of people are actually able to live with a smaller amount of sleep and that kind of makes sense because um it's not something that nature has ever really had to deal with. The only time in nature that animals um, will go without sleep is if they're in a starvation state. If you're in a starvation state, the body like out of you know a, 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 a need to survive and continue forward will uh, create um, Uh, higher levels of a hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin is uh, the, the, the hormone which exists inside the brain and makes us feel hungry, makes us feel like we have to have something to eat. It produces ghrelin. Ghrelin leads to the production of dopamine. Dopamine keeps you awake. So if you are in a starvation state, then you are more likely to stay awake because you need to go and hunt and forage and get some food into you, otherwise you expire. If you specifically push yourself into a sleep deprived state, an interesting byproduct is that you start producing ghrelin. And when you produce ghrelin, you produce dopamine. So if you are uh, pushing yourself to be sleep deprived, and then you start to produce ghrelin, you get hungers and you start to feel pretty bad with it. You'll Then start to produce dopamine and then you will stay awake. Is this kind of oh, well, here we go. We found a way of shortcutting, isn't it? We just make ourselves stay awake, we'll feel hungry, and then we'll be awake. Well, yes, and no, in the short term, that's going to work absolutely. But what's the downside of not sleeping? Well, let's have a look at it the fact that there are people who have tried to push the world record for staying awake, and the world record at the moment is somewhere over 11 days. The thing with the Uh, such a record is that those people that go down that path to try and challenge the uh, accepted uh, wisdom on this stuff start to exhibit hugely strong hallucinations, disorientation, paranoia. People are starting to lose the plot. Okay, now we can imagine that if you're awake for three or four days, if you're trying to push for some kind of crazy world record, okay, yeah, you might start to lose the plot. I totally get it. But when does that cut in? An interesting threshold in this is that after 20 hours without sleep, you have the same mental capacity as someone who is legally drunk. Yep, 20 hours of sleeplessness. I guess that's so you wake up like at seven in the morning. By seven that night, you're gonna be on uh, 12 hours. Another eight hours later, so by five or six the next morning, you're gonna have the same mental and physiological capacity as someone who is legally drunk. In research, the peak muscle strength and vertical jump height and peak running speed, all of which are easily traced uh, empirically, are all uh, lowered by uh, a sleep impairment of just 20 hours, okay? And to the, how, how big is this? Well, we're looking at the fact that it's up to 30%, 30% of your physical ability 30% of your recuperative ability and 30% of your uh, problem-solving and cognitive ability to understand what's going on around you, 30% reduction in what's going on. These are huge numbers. If you're thinking like in most sports, they're looking for you know a couple of percent here and there. You're just looking for some little advantage if you can get it. 30% is massive. 30% when you're driving a car is a difference between hitting something and not hitting something. And for I've been talking now for about 12 and a half minutes, so I can share with you that there have been 25 car accidents around the world which are directly linked to drowsy driving. Drowsy driving and accidents that are connected with the driver being uh, overtired account for more deaths than drinking and drugs combined. And the thing which is an interesting characteristic which affects us as sailors is the fact that, or the safety of us as sailors, is the fact that whilst you're reaction time and your uh, ability to comprehend what's going on around you may be delayed or suppressed by drink or drugs. If you go into a micro sleep, which is a tiny moment where the brain just shuts down because it's so desperate for sleep that it just shuts down momentarily, your eyelids may not even close completely. During that moment, there is no reaction. It's not like you hit the brakes late, is you don't hit the brakes at all. If you're on a boat and God forbid you are stupid enough to believe that you can drink whilst operating a boat, Uh, it's, you know, your, your ability to know what's going around you is going to be reduced. But if you're, uh, having a micro sleep whilst on watch and something happens, there is no reaction at all. Microsleeps might be, you know, between one and five seconds. People always ask me, how can so many people be found in the water? And it's like 80% men, right? With their flies down and they've fallen off the back of the boat. We all know it, obviously having a life jacket on, being connected to the boat, absolutely imperative at all times. But how can so many of them be found in the water? Like, what's going on? Well, one of the uh, associated factors with these people going off the back of the boat is they're often stumbling out of the cabin or getting up off, you know, half asleep off the bench to go to the back to have a pee. At which point, the uh, tiny little stability muscles that help us with microbalance are not functioning properly because it's one of the Uh, side effects of having sleep deprivation. If you get someone and put them on one of those balance boards, it's like basically half a basketball with a piece of plywood on the top of it. That's micro balance. That's your ability to just stabilize yourself in a very small way. That is being on a boat. We all know that. Now you're standing at the back of the boat and you've got one hand on the backstay and you're having a pee, that micro balance, that ability to assess what's going on and react quickly is 30% at least down because of sleep deprivation. So for us as sailors, we need to be very aware of where sleep comes in the hierarchy of our safety. We're all aware of the fact, of course, that if you're gonna do offshore sailing, you're gonna be at sea for longer periods of time. Um, Sleeping is something which we have to work out how to regulate. Now for me, when I've been at sea uh, initially, I was at sea uh, on a tall ship. And we did four hours on, four hours off. And the uh, chief mate was a guy called Steve Byrne. Hello, Steve, if you're listening. Fantastic sailor and a fantastic mentor for me in my early years at sea. Um, Steve, with a military background, with a Navy background, uh, between him and the captain, they had us on a four hours on, four hours off watch system with a dog watch in the afternoon, which allowed us to kind of rotate through the watches. That kind of system is widespread amongst sailors uh, on, on, on smaller recreational craft but it may not actually be the most intelligent uh, thing to be doing. I've done four hours on, four hours off. I've done four hour watches with a dog watch in the afternoon to to move you through the watches. I've done the Swedish system where you do longer watches in the day and shorter watches at night. I really like that one. A lot of my time at sea with the Clipper race, we did six hour watches in the day and three or four, I can't remember it was four hour watches at night. for me personally, as a sailor, uh, when I'm doing stuff solo, it's a little bit more tricky, but I have had to understand over time, the fact that I would, um, although I would try and push myself to, uh, to, to like not sleep and not sleep, uh, you know, only get two or three hours sleep and all this kind of stuff that we say, my view on reporting that has changed over time. I think because, um, there's this machismo, as I say, in sailing of like, oh, I only slept for two hours. I only slept for three hours. There are bits where you have to do that. Like I've been awake 48 and 72 hours many, many times. But there's a, a, you start to report them as though that's some kind of like grand escapade and something you should be super proud of and didn't you do well because you stayed awake for so long. The fact of the matter is that when you're doing this big offshore stuff, there's many, many periods where you can actually set all your alarms, set your active echo, which tells you when you're being scanned by a radar, Uh, set your radar on a watchman um, basis. So it basically, the radar wakes up every five minutes, scans 20 or 30 times. You have a little guard zone as it's called, electronic kind of uh, ring fence around your boat. And if anything's inside that area, when the radar scans, it'll set off an alarm. So you've got your active echo, you know if you're being scanned, You've got your radar set up so it's being economical, but it tells you if anything gets too close to you. You've got all your alarms on your um, NKE or your Raymarine Marine or your BNG, whatever it is, your autopilot system. So you know what's going on and then you can go to sleep. Now, are we all breaking the most fundamental rule of, uh, of the international collision regulations that you should be proceeding at a safe speed with a uh, suitable watch? The solo world is always on the edge with that. I would say that these things I'm talking about is how we sail when we're in open ocean, very, very far from the shipping lanes. If you're in the shipping lanes, you just have to stay awake and man, it's awful. But once you're away from that, what kind of cycle do we actually get into? Yeah, there are bits where it's like that two, three hour days. I gotta tell you, there's heaps of bits where you get Easily eight hours sleep a day. Shock, horror. There you go. Well, that's why I'm so slow and that's why I can never win a race. It's because I'm sleeping too much. Maybe, maybe not. I think if you actually dug down to the bottom of what people are actually doing out there and cut through all the bullshit, they're actually sleeping quite long periods. Now, are you sleeping all in one go? No, you need to break it up. Are you sleeping continuously? No, because you still need to do that thing where you wake up every 20 minutes and you break your sleep cycle, you look at the instruments and then you go back to sleep again. You're you're damaging how you sleep, but you are at least trying to seek out a very decent amount of sleep. Because if you start to reduce people's uh, sleep over periods of time, again, more research has been done on this, you can see people's uh, mental capacity and their uh, ability to um, rationalize their emotions. Um, You can see that taking a nosedive and the research shows that there's no indication that even after two or three weeks of doing this, that there's any kind of stabilization. You just continue to get worse and worse and worse until, in the end, of course, you make a mistake. And I think it's something I wanted to say about this with the um, with with the, the the view of like um, solo sailor sleep patterns. I've been one of the people that has um, uh, promulgated this idea that you you know you hardly sleep at all. It would petrify me if people were taking that, which really is kind of like a thin slice of the experience I have at sea, and then extrapolating that out and trying to live that at sea. I think that's I think it's mortally unwise advice as as Matthew Walker said. So uh, be very aware that um, You know, if you're on your own, you need to try and find a way to sleep as much as you can. If you're in a group, if you're in a crew, if you're on a boat, you need to start thinking about uh, sleep as being not a part of the day where the crew are useless and become cargo, but a part of the day where the crew are recouping and revitalizing themselves, re energizing, ready for the next onslaught. A well-rested crew is, is much safer and much faster than a crew which are uh, not taking sleep seriously. In the military, they say, sleep is a weapon. Basically, when you're looking at numbers like that of like 30% difference in the ability of people who are well-rested versus those who are not, uh, the group, the squad, the battalion, the, the crew of the fighting ship, whatever it is, that have slept more, are going to outmaneuver and outpace and and outfight a group who uh, are not well rested. That's just a fact. Sleep is a weapon. So as we go into sleep, then as we start to get into uh, this uh, this thing which we've all done <laughs> tens of thousands of times, uh, what's really going on? Well, we have an increase of the uh, hormone melatonin. Melatonin is in the body. It's um, created and affected by uh, increasing and decreasing light levels. So. As we get towards the end of the day, the sun starts to go down, as it is just now outside of my window. It's, uh, what time is it here now? It's 4.30 in the afternoon in Nova Scotia. The sun has now dipped behind the trees. There's no more direct light coming from the sun. It's just the sky lit up now, another hour and it's gonna be pitch black. And naturally, a part of me inside is going like, okay, not too long to sleep now. and. You get that kind of warm, cozy, get the fire on, get the TV on, get the family around, whatever it is that's going on. You get that kind of like, hey, let's just, you know, why don't we just hibernate for a little while? That feeling that's coming upon you there is very basic and it is created by melatonin. Melatonin, as we say, is affected by light levels, which is where we keep getting this piece of advice coming to us from all different corners that we have to be very careful about the amount of electric light and the amount of screen time that we have as we go into the evening. You'll see on your Android or iOS device, even on my desktops and stuff here, they will naturally dim and go to a more yellowish color as it goes into the evening um, to assist me as a biological entity going into the next state I have to go into at roughly this time of the uh, you know cycle that I'm gonna need to go to sleep. That yellowing of the light takes the blue out of it and it's the blue light particularly which suppresses melatonin melatonin as it reaches its critical peak is the thing that then sends you off to sleep if you are sitting in bed and looking at your screen and uh, and playing around your iPad and doing that kind of stuff which I definitely do um, it can delay the release of melatonin for hours and that means that it's then very difficult not only is your brain filled with all sorts of things which you're now thinking about and worrying about and all the rest of it but the melatonin levels have been affected to a point where there's no particular chemical impetus for you to go to sleep. So um, being aware of this is uh, super important. It's also, of course, one of the ways that if you are dealing with jet lag, if you're moving back and forwards, when you get to your new time zone, if you don't feel like going to sleep, taking melatonin um, as a supplement at that point can artificially give you the, the chemical impetus to go to sleep, and then you can get to sleep on time and function in the new time zone. So a little, little tip there. Unless you have a very, very bad uh, sleep cycle uh, through medical complications, or if you're particularly old and that, that rhythm is not really functioning the way it should, melatonin supplements taken uh, most of the time are not having a, a massively huge effect. When we get into sleep, what happens? Well, inside the brain, we've got a number of different chemicals and different uh, parts of the brain start to change their state. Uh, in the brain, uh, noradrenaline, which is the equivalent of adrenaline, noradrenaline production is reduced massively down. That means that this is part of the the, 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 the function of the brain to basically um, stop us from playing out our uh, dreams. If you are going to get into a situation where you'd be... Um, kicking and running and going up and down the stairs and jumping and and pulling on the sheets and doing all the kinds of things that you do when you're uh, normally involved in the activities that you're dreaming about. You'd be thrashing and kicking around. You wake yourself back up. It would be a poor um, characteristic to to stay in the gene pool. And who would want to keep the, you know, (laughs) helping along the genes of the the crazy person in the cave who is uh, thrashing and kicking and screaming and waking everybody up. That has been ejected from the gene pool already. So as we go to sleep, we go into what's called muscle incarceration, where we're unable to move, adrenaline dips, and we don't feel the same levels of fear and anxiety that we would feel if we were experiencing these things in everyday life. Interestingly, if you are woken up, Adrenaline peaks, and if you were having like a crazy dream, you wake up. Oh my god! In a in a in a in a massive panic, sweating, all that kind of stuff. Part of nightmares because the adrenaline then is released at the point of waking up. But muscle incarceration occurs, and at that point, um, there is an opportunity. And I've experienced this well many times. If you're a sailor and you're on watch, I used to get it particularly when I was um, <laughs> when I was in the navy, and I would like I would fall asleep on watch. Uh, which you definitely were not meant to do. And then part of my brain would kick back in and go, Jesus, you shouldn't be asleep now. Wake myself back up, but I'd be unable to move. And in uh, Newfoundland, the culture there calls that the old hag. It's like there's an old woman. So they say the spirit of an old woman is sitting on your chest and you're unable to move. So the old hag or the hag um, is when you wake up and you are unable to move. You're like paralyzed. And personally, I find that hugely anxious moment and it's only over uh, many years of experiencing it and now being able to pull into my semi-conscious mind okay this is what's going on the only solution is to calm your breathing down go back to sleep and kind of reset and i can get myself back out of it but that muscle incarceration is there to stop us from acting out our dreams if you wake up too early on watch or if you wake up unexpectedly or something you end up feeling like paralyzed it's because these chemicals are still flowing. Okay, now inside the brain, parts are shutting down, but other parts are starting to wake up. Parts which are responsible for muscle coordination and for the eyes, they're starting to wake up, even though you've got your eyes closed and not moving, but the stimulus centers in the brain which control those things are waking up. The other part which is shutting down though is the frontal cortex. And the frontal cortex is where your awareness of who you are as a person exists. The, the part of the brain which is kind of like the captain of the boat, that part of the brain is gone and that, that level of consciousness is now removed. So the other parts of the brain are then free to kind of spool and spin their tires and run around with their knickers on the head as much as they want. And that sounds somewhat uncontrolled and somewhat kind of crazy, but maybe therein is the the mechanism that nature has developed for us, which means there is such an evolutionary emphasis on this activity. Anybody that is uh, pursuing and developing a hard skill, particularly music, I understand, is something where you can end up trying to learn things, trying to develop skills, and because the easiest way for us to learn anything is to chunk things into like bite-sized bits that we can deal with, you can end up with a real kind of staccato kind of um, uh, uh, janky kind of way of making your way through what should be a very smooth and flowing set of actions. Obviously, in music, it'd be very easy to perceive that because you wouldn't have the flow and the, and the, the skill and dexterity of a maestro. Um, but those who study music particularly report that they can practice something and then go to sleep and wake back up the next day and have fluidity to their movement and get into this state of automaticity where they the actions they want to complete are automatic we all had that maps when we were learning to drive where it's really difficult and you're trying to concentrate and the windscreen wipers are going and the radio's on and particularly if it's a stick shift you're having to concentrate on that and then suddenly over a number of lessons or whatever it is it just starts to flow and it becomes automatic and now as For many of you, when I get in a car, I'm not really thinking, okay, I'm pressing the brake now, I'm putting the indicator on, it's just happening as an extension of the body. That level of automaticity is something that we are looking for as sailors to build into everything that we do, that we just look at exactly this point and we put our hand in exactly that point and everything just happens automatically. To develop that automaticity, we need to practice. We need to practice these things as many, many, many times as we possibly can. We've all heard that practice makes perfect, but that's really only part of the story. In the podcast with Joe Rogan, one of the experiments that Matthew Walker describes is the fact that they send rats through a maze. And all of the different parts of the maze, you can imagine having like a, uh, a different signal or a signature inside the brain. They can monitor the the rats as they're going through the maze and they can see it like a b c d e f g are the different steps of the instructions left turn right turn for the rat as it goes through the maze as they then scan the brain of the rat as it's asleep they can again identify those signals but now the rat is processing them at 20 times the speed it really wants that food so it wants to develop a level of automaticity to this movement through the maze so that it can get to the food Uh, in a quicker fashion. So then instead of seeing A, B, C, D, it's A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. It's going through and like repeating and learning the maze as it sleeps. The same for the musician who's trying to get that um, apegrio or whatever it is uh, worked out. So I'm not (laughs) particularly a musician, unfortunately, but the thing with all the notes going up and down, you're trying to develop that smoothness to what's going on and sleep is an opportunity to uh, review and analyze information. What's interesting is that they have been able to uh, put a kind of figure on this and show that um, 30% increase, it always seems to be around 30%, 30% increase uh, of the um, development of a skill through sleeping on it. So we always hear this thing, don't we? you like, you know, go on, gonna go and sleep on a problem. Um, sleeping on a problem is a very good idea. Practicing something and then sleeping on it gives the brain an opportunity to come back make new and novel links between different pieces of information to practice and visualize and kind of go through something. And therefore, even though it's been estimated that uh, visualizing and dreaming about something may only have 50% of the impact of actually practicing it uh, with your hands and with your body in the real world, 50% repeated tens of thousands of times during many merry sleep periods adds up to a whole lot of um development in that skill set so sleep is something which is uh, uh very very important for us to be able to uh analyze and work through what's going on in our lives it also gives an opportunity to go through emotional circumstances and kind of review those and interpersonal relationships and situational kind of um Things within our lives and within the physical world around us to better understand our arrangement, like where things are. You know, I, when I go and live in new cities for like weeks, I don't know where the flipping eck and everything is, I'm forever getting lost. And then there's a kind of point where I just go, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. And no doubt that's because I have been kind of practicing and learning and thinking about the layout of the city during the periods of time that I've been asleep. In terms of the other functions of sleep, sleep is also the opportunity for the body to flush away. Uh, carcinogens and and cancerous uh, cells which are produced in the body. All the time, we are producing cancerous cells, but those cancerous cells are picked up and uh, and disposed of by mechanisms inside the body. Sleep is the time, the most important time of our, our day when those, you know, you can drink as much green tea as you like, but in the end, you're gonna need something a bit more. And sleep is the major time when, when these cancerous cells are disposed of now is this something like i'm just kind of putting out there like with the the crystal sniffers and the uh, tarot card readers no here's how it goes uh the world health organization through its research through people like matthew walker has now un- now understands such a strong connection between shift working and sleep deprivation and cancer particularly breast and prostate and um, bowel cancer, that the World Health Organization has now classified shift work that involves sleep deprivation as a uh, dangerous pursuit of possible carcinogen. Can we get that <laughs> any more clearly stated? That shift work that leads to sleep deprivation, so I don't think you're nine to five, you're not gonna be able to tell people, oh, I can't come in, I'm, you know, it's a possible carcinogen, but if you're staying awake at night and you're getting sleep deprived, the outcome, the health outcomes as they've been tracked for people that do shift work, which obviously is not part of normal human action. The overwhelming amount of obesity, diabetes and cancer of shift workers has now led the World Health Organization to rate it as a carcinogen. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Believe it or not, believe it, but that's the the facts, right? So the other two things are diabetes and obesity, when you are getting to a state where you are massively sleep deprived. We mentioned that ghrelin is then produced in much higher amounts. Ghrelin is that starvation hormone, which, um, causes you to like, you feel hungry and you'll want to go and get something to eat. Those people that are sleep deprived start to produce ghrelin and then they start to eat more. And what do they eat? They, because their body's like, Hey man, I'm like, feel like I'm short on calories, even though actually it's just being triggered by sleep deprivation. Um, the, Calories that you go and seek out are cheap, crummy, uh, nasty, processed calories. My favorites. Anybody that sells with me knows that I am a massive Haribo fan. And uh, I'm not sure even that this critical piece of information is going to allow me to move away from my Haribo near addiction. But the fact of the matter is that research in this area has shown that, because our body is like getting worried that, you know, hey, we've got like a calorie deficiency here, even though that actually that's just being triggered by ghrelin production because of sleep deprivation, we will go and find really simple nasty carbohydrates. Now, how much? Well, between 250 and 450 extra calories per day, whilst in a sleep deprived state. Now that adds up to something between 70 and 100,000 calories a year. Can we see at all in this why shift workers may be susceptible to obesity? Because they are sleep deprived. That means they're producing ghrelin. Ghrelin is making them go out after uh, nasty uh, cheap calories and they're getting them in their face as best they can. That's my personal reality as well. That's how I understand it. And for anybody that's shopped on the boats when we've gone out in Spartan, you'll know, I'm like, yeah, get chocolate, get peanuts, get... Get anything, you get all the biscuits they have in the store, buy all the cookies in the world and bring them back to the boat because that is where my head was recently, uh, until recently, about this problem. Now, there's something to be said for the fact that we need to be aware as sailors that if you're going to be awake all through the night or for large portions of the night, you need to be starting to think on a kind of four meal a day basis. You're going to be having something breakfasty you're going to be having something lunchy and I say it like that because you know it's never quite exactly the way it is at home is it but um, you're going to have something around you know sundown time or just after and then there may be a requirement for something else between like one or two in the morning but whatever it is we need to take as much uh, time and effort as we can to make sure that that is a vaguely healthy option and of course the only way of doing that is to basically remove the other options now I think technically this is me announcing my retirement from sailing because if I'm going out there and there's no chocolate and Haribo, I don't really see any point in doing it. But the fact remains that um, I don't think any of us are in any doubts now about the way the processed food affects our health. And if there is a direct correlation, certainly the World Health Organization seems to think there is, between um, sleep deprivation and uh, being a carcinogen and ghrelin production and obesity and then diabetes, which comes as a part of that, I think we have to kind of like be a little bit aware of this. This is not something that we really have an option on um, on denying. I think of some of the people that are most famously like non non sleepers or light sleepers, and I think about the kind of prestige which has been attached to that of like and and I. He brings it up in the Joe Rogan podcast, Matthew He talks about Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But I remember that period of time. I was, you know, alive and aware during that period of time. And I remember that she always used to say she didn't sleep any more than five hours a night. And Ronald Reagan was of the same same ilk. And that's seen as being like a higher level, you know, human 2.0 type characteristic. But the fact of the matter is that both Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher succumbed to Alzheimer's in their old age. And unfortunately, the hormones, which are produced by sleep deprivation in a cumulative sense add up to and are the best indicator we have right now of the onset of Alzheimer's in our old age. So the thing that we have to bear in mind with all this is that the latest research in all of this from you know, numerous sources around the world is that uh, short sleep predicts all-cause mortality, okay? Short sleep is the best predictor of all-cause mortality. So the shorter you sleep, the shorter your life, yeah? If you are someone who, unfortunately, because of the way that your uh, work life is organized, because of the way that you have chosen to organize your personal life, because of medical complaints, or because of machismo based around, I don't need to sleep, you literally are allowing (laughs) those around you, unfortunately, to predict your mortality. It may be that other things get in there and and become a cause of that. But on the whole, the easiest way of understanding a premature mortality through all different causes is the fact that you're not sleeping properly. So the, the thing that I think was the most stunning piece of uh, a stunning statement that came out of the uh, interview I saw with Matthew Walker was the fact that um he was pointing out that uh, wakefulness and being awake and consciousness and, and, and living your life and you know having your eyes open going through your day is low level brain damage. Isn't that unbelievable? So the processes that go on inside your brain create waste products that need to be flushed through in a physiological sense. If you don't allow that process to happen, sure, yeah, the power station will keep running, but the lake of crap around the power station is gonna get deeper and deeper and deeper until it erodes the foundations of the power station, and then it's your toast, right? <laughs> the fact that uh, all of these other associated things, whether it be cancer, whether it be your judgment, whether it be your physical ability, all of it is uh, predicted by short sleep pattern. So, what can we do about this? Well, as sailors, we're in a bit of a bit of a bit of a predicament, you're not gonna be very famous on board the boat if you start saying, I have to have my eight hours sleep. It, there's a lot of evidence to show that humans have a kind of basic two-phase sleep process already kind of hardwired into them. If you look at um, peoples who are somewhat unaffected by particularly like electrification and shift work and the modern world in that way, if they're a bit more out in, in, in remote areas, they tend to sleep about six, six and a half hours um, during the night following normally like the sun and then uh, they will sleep again in that period just after the, uh, the the midday meal now there's a kind of feeling that well of course you've had a big meal then you need to sleep but that's not quite what's happening that's um, uh, that drop uh, just after lunch which is called the postprandial dip that exists uh what kind of whatever your diet is and whatever you're doing. It's 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 um tangibly uh recordable that your neural uh activity is dipping and your abilities, your mental abilities, physiological abilities are dipping just slightly after midday. That kind of two till four o'clock kind of period. We all know what it is. We're at work, you oh man, life, what's this? If you've got a high carb diet, um I gotta say, like I am the biggest fan of bread I think there's ever been. Like if I could open a bread factory, there'd be well I'd just be one customer, it'd be me. But the uh, like big heavy bagels, stuff like that. I can eat two bagels back to back and then literally need to like fall into a bagel coma directly afterwards. That amount of carbs coming into the body, yeah, sure, it's gonna make you very tired. But even if you're getting yourself into um, into ketosis and you've got a much more balanced diet and you a low carb diet, there's still tangibly this evidence that you have this postprandial dip. And what is that? Well, that's the siesta, which is taken in many, many parts of the world. So we already have a kind of two-phase thing going on, which is good. As sailors, what we need to do is we need to try and work out like how are we gonna run this system on this boat so that everyone's at their best. There's too much. Wow, man. There's no other word for it. Like machismo kind of thing going on. Of like, oh, we can talk about how people wake us up. Oh my God, yeah, we got to talk about that, but this thing of like, um, no, it's okay, I'll just helm for seven hours. There are some exceptional circumstances when you have to helm for very long periods of time. I had one when we last did the middle sea race um, in 2000, and, uh, well, I guess 2019 it was, and um, we were coming around the top of Sicily and I ended up helming for 14 hours. And um, what we did in that situation was very, very rough and it was just safest if I, if I handled the boat. Um, but what I did is I knew that my mental capacity at the end of that would be severely limited. And I knew that what was gonna happen next is we're gonna enter a small Mediterranean port and, uh, and have to dock the boat. So what I did is my number two, which was Daniel on that occasion, I just had him go down below and just sleep if he wanted to, monitor the navigation, Uh, monitor the interior of the boat monitor people that were down um, uh, sick inside the boat and that meant that when it got time to go into that port he was able to come on deck fully refreshed uh, and not limited by this 30 percent dip in his uh, mental uh, cognition and he was able to then make excellent judgments going into the port and i have to say on that occasion i don't think i've ever had it more strongly pointed out to me that i had on that occasion made a good decision I was driving the boat and, and I was kind of in a, you know, I guess I've been doing this a long time. So I was kind of in a groove doing that. But as we approached the port, I couldn't work out exactly what the lights were. I couldn't work out the interrelation of the lights. There was um, a lot of jetties and I still had a natural feel for the way the boat was handling against the wind. I did in fact end up parking the boat because my even 30% down, I had more experience of parking the boat with high winds, but I did it with Daniel navigating me to the berth and he did take us uh down a route i wouldn't have chosen and he took us down the safe route which i guess is a kind of bit of an ass about face way of saying that had i been the one making the judgment of going into that port i suspect we would certainly been a bit more of a close quarters situation with some of the shallow ground that i wasn't really expecting in that port so to negate and under to understand that i was going to have a dip in my uh, abilities we negated that by making sure someone else was super fresh. So as sailors, we've got to be aware of that. Like you can't be waking people up. I can remember being a tall ship rigger and being called up, um, and like literally pointing up at the rig, like you got to fix that right now. And if Steve Byrne is listening to this, he'll remember that moment. I think it was the fisherman staysail, like 50, 60 feet up between the masts on this brigantine G Fung, that we were running. And, uh, I think the sheet had got itself wrapped below the stay, around the stay below or something, there was a knot in it. But at 18, just woken up, I made the judgment call of I'm just gonna climb up the stay and release it. So I climbed myself up the stay, like 40 feet off the deck, whatever it was, and released it and managed to climb back down the staysaw using the Piston Hanks' uh, footholds. But I think I fell the last six feet. I think Steve caught me because I didn't have the physical capacity to do it. i made an incorrect judgment. I should have been harnessed up now at that time, in that world, um, we were not actually uh, using the safety methods that we have these days. We would never leave the deck in that way uh, in the, in on a modern tall ship, on a sail training vessel, or on any of the boats that I've ever been on since. But at that time, which was like 1996, sail training was a little bit different, and we were very traditional riggers, and I made a judgment call that I could get there and back down and it wasn't going to be a problem in it at all. That was incorrect. Um, that kind of thing of when you're calling somebody up quickly, where exactly are they at? And I guess that's segue enough into how do you wake people up? So, oh my goodness, I have been woken up by some fucking idiots and I have no concept at all of what people think they are doing when they wake somebody up by shouting, are you five years old? What is wrong with you? Somebody is 100% asleep They are in an absolutely neutral state, and how you wake them up will then determine, well, how they are for the next probably hour, which if you're doing, say, four hours on, four hours off, not that that's particularly what I do, but the next 25% of the next watch is gonna be, their their mental state is gonna be determined by how you wake them up. How much more does it take to get up close to somebody, hey, hey, John, you you wake there, John? Yeah, give him a bit of a shake. You know, make sure your torch is not like bright in their face. Just angle the torch off to one side. Maybe that's a good time for red light. And they'll look at you and you give them a big smile. Yeah, everything's okay. No problem. No problem, buddy. You uh you see you in a couple minutes. Yeah, fine. Give them some time. That is very easy to do. And don't tell me that it's more efficient to wake them up by shouting. All that is, is you're like playing out some kind of like issue you've got about your childhood. You wake people up gently and it maximizes their effectiveness, both as a crew member and as a unit on board, on the deck of the boat. Now, there may be some times when it is an emergency and they will forgive you for the big wake up if they get on deck and everything's going sideways and it's just action, 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 no problem at all. Maybe they'll even take some of that frustration and anger and turn it usefully into what's going on. But if you wake somebody up like that when there is no emergency, you're gonna end up with people that are pissed off, you're going to end up with uh, a lot of kind of um, irritation between people on the crew. It, they will just naturally have this like inbuilt instinct that they don't like the person because the person woke them up like that. The other thing is that when you're waking people up, sometimes you wake them and you wake them and wake them and they don't wake up and they just, you know, <laughs> no, it's not because they're dead, although it does happen, but it's because they're deep inside the uh, that deep sleep uh, portion of what's going on. They may be in REM sleep. They may be in that restorative uh, deep sleep, which is the the deepest form of sleep that we can get to, where all the kind of good work and all the, the stuff is kind of flushed out of your body, all those nasty bits and bobs, which is sleep is there to clean out. If they're in that state, you don't just start shaking them more and more and more roughly until you get what you want. Just be somewhat like sensitive to the fact that they are undergoing some kind of, bi- you're not like if someone's in the toilet and you're banging on the door, hey buddy, you got to come out of the toilet. You're not then like in the toilet, wrestling them off the toilet and dragging them on deck. They're engaged in a biological function, which needs to complete. So what you can do, I've found, is you just go over, you can wake, you see if you can wake them up, see if you can wake them up, see if you can wake, can't wake them up. Clearly, they're not ready to wake up, okay? Give them five more minutes, which by the way, is not just an excuse for walking away and then coming back. It's five whole minutes, it's five times 60, right? And then give them a bit of time. Something inside their brain will have registered like, uh-uh, okay, hang on, what's going on here? I may need to wake up and they may already be coming out of it. When you go back after five minutes, they may very well already be ready to go. Also calculate, is this person like really, really essential to what's going on? Is this person like here to helm the boat? Is this person here to climb the mast? Is this person like the navigator? If there are any of those three things, you really want them to complete that, that sleep cycle. If there's any way that you can give them 10, 15 minutes of like you know, wiggle room, to just complete that biological function, they're gonna wake up rested, they're gonna have better mental and physical capacity, they're gonna be more on side for what you're doing, and there's gonna be an increase in like camaraderie inside the boat when you realize, both as the person being woken and then later as the person doing the waking, you are gonna realize that, hey, this is a kind of like safe environment. Obviously, if something's going on that's you know really fast then you gotta wake up fast, but if it's not, that we are actually caring for each other is a much, much better place to be. And don't think for a second that someone that's uh, half awake, half asleep is not taking in what's going on around them, taking in the way that they're woken up, and that's not affecting their emotional situation. As we already know, if you are massively sleep deprived, your ability to emotionally uh, regulate what's going on around you is being damaged. And if you've got someone who's being woken up very roughly, regularly, they're going to have a very much more emotional reaction to that than you might expect. So in terms of um, uh, uh, watches, how best to do that, people always ask me is what watch system do I run? I used to run, uh, I run a variety of watches. So when I was on the clipper boat, um, we would, we had three watches. We were 21 people plus me. I was kind of floating outside the system, 21 people on the whole, and I would divide them into seven people per watch. It was a 68 foot boat. It was a lot for each person to do. And that meant that they tend to be stood up, which then means they're not getting all kind of rashes on their bums and, uh, you know, getting uncomfortable and cold. They're, they're trimming, they're grinding, they're helming, they're naving, they're doing whatever they're doing. And then if they need more people, they'll go down below and get the next watch, whoever the next watch is, because that watch has already slept through one period and is now sleeping another period because we have three watches. Three watches of seven was much better than having uh, two watches of uh, ten, okay, because there's uh, there's more for people to do, and it's more intelligent work for them to do, and it is uh, a, a better system in terms of people getting more sleep. Okay, what I did is combine this with the Swedish system, which meant that we did six hour watches in the day and four hours. I remember now it was four hours at night. I think I would modify that now to three hours at night because three hours at night means that um, you are uh, you know, my, my experience so far is that four hours on watch, after the first hour, you look at your watch and go, oh man, there's still three hours to go. Like, this totally sucks. Particularly if it's a nasty night, it's a cold night, whatever it is, right? If you've been on watch an hour and you're on a three-hour watch system, you look at your watch and go, oh, it's two hours. That's like, that's not awful. That's like possible, doable. And as I always say, there's like magic time. Magic time is when you get into the last half hour of your watch and you know it's only 15 minutes until you wake everybody up. 15 minutes, anybody can do anything for 15 minutes. You know there are people who have hyperventilated on oxygen, have held their breath for 15 minutes, in fact more. So 15 minutes is fine. So actually after an hour on deck, you look at your watch and go, oh, it's only an hour and a half until magic time. And then you get to magic time, which is 15 minutes and you start, oh hey, these guys are gonna be coming soon, brilliant. And then at quarter of an hour before the turn of the hour, then you go and wake the folks up. they got 15 minutes to go to the bathroom and sort themselves out and put their clothing on, get themselves organized. And they come up on deck a couple minutes before the change of the watch. They receive the information. They are rested. They are getting good information from people who are themselves well rested and part of a, uh, an intelligent uh, watch cycle. And everything seems to pass off a lot more easily. Um, what it meant for my crew on the clipper race though with the four hours during the night and the six hours during the day with three watches was that every third day you would get the two six hour watches off which then meant they had 12 hours below decks and again as soon as I say that I know there's people going oh 12 hours when you're racing that's ridiculous you know it's not because sleep is a weapon we had very little argument between any of the crew members we had almost no accidents. We had a couple of cracked ribs and we'd sailed 43,000 miles around the world with 22 people on the boat doing it. And we we had one rib cracked when someone fell backwards into a toilet. We immediately made a system so that there was, that aperture wasn't there and that wasn't possible. We had somebody else crack a rib when they were leopard crawling down the deck in heavy weather and a fortune wave dumped on their back and they, they cracked a rib. And the other one was somebody who burnt his hands Because of an experience hoisting a kite, and he didn't notice that the line wasn't being tailed from between his feet, and then the kite opened, he tried to hold the halyard. So those three accidents in 43,000 miles with 22 people on board, and I would say a lot of that was to do with the fact that we were really monitoring um, sleep and trying to be as as sensible of that as possible. Go the other way and say, oh, no, no, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to sleep you know, tiny amounts, you're getting into the kind of area that the medical profession uh, seems to inhabit. So to give you an idea of this, you know, if you look around and go, oh, well, medics do these massively long on watch systems. uh, Surely if it's good for them, it's good for all people. They're medics after all. The thing we need to understand is that sometimes history gives us a system which is inherently flawed. And that is something which is definitely true with the modern, particularly North American, uh, residents surgical training programs. Um, The thing which people seem to forget about this is that the person that really started this off in uh, the U.S. is uh, William Stuart Halstead. And he was uh, one of the people at John Hopkins University, along with uh, William Osler, who uh, started to create a program where people would be specifically trained in advanced medical procedures over a long period of time. They would reside and be residents of the hospital, be one of the senior staff. And in that way, um, had exposure to a greater level of, uh, of medical knowledge. This began in the late uh, 1800s, and so we're looking now at about 140 years of the residence training program. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is that Old Holstead uh, was a coke addict, and uh, he set up these schedules and set up these schemes for people to. Um, learn and to um, take information from him, become better doctors, that's great. And fortunately, he was also famous for being able to stay awake for hugely long, like superhuman amounts of time, nobody realizing that he was a cokehead. The problem with that is that, like any good cokehead, he expected everybody else to go toe-to-toe with him on everything he did, which meant that people then were staying awake for ridiculously long periods of time. He fell into that addiction because he was also one of the people that was there right at the beginning learning uh, about the benefits of cocaine derivative um, analgesics like lidocaine and novocaine, that kind of thing. But during that process became addicted, he knew that there was an issue that his coke addiction was a problem. And he actually then started to go and get early form of rehabilitation, at which point he became a morphine addict. So (laughs) we kind of see what's going on here. But that process, of people still going toe-to-toe in their training with uh, Holstead still exists now. To give you an idea, in um, North America at the moment, the the, the rules as they are is that there's an 80 hour weekly limit averaged over four weeks, okay? So 80 hour a week working uh, over four hours, 10 hour rest period between duty periods, and a 24 hour limit on continuous duty. Okay, now that sounds like pretty reasonable. I think people have kind of got used to that. It's complete tosh. If you compare it to the European system, not that I'm predicating one over the other, but they have a 48 hour working week averaged over uh, 26 weeks, and 11 hours continuous rest are stipulated per day, and one day off each week, or two days off each fortnight, uh, and then 20 minutes of continuous rest every six hours that's very different from the North American system. And you should know that um, if you have somebody coming to deal with you who has been working like a 30 hour shift, which is not that uh, uncommon for junior residents, they have a 460% uh, greater chance of making a diagnostic error, yeah? And if you have uh, uh, somebody that's gonna come and do surgery for you, some kind of elective surgery, Um, if they have had less than six hours sleep in the last 24, you have a 170% higher chance of there being some kind of major uh, surgical blunder, like uh, uh, some kind of organ damage or or some kind of bleeding or what have you that uh, could be avoided had they slept more. Because we know now, you should have got it through this podcast and any other research you've done, sleep is so important. The likelihood of this stuff uh, changing within the medical profession uh, in the near future is quite high because uh, obviously other territories of the world, they, they've twigged onto this, they've changed it, but it's a highly contentious uh, issue in the uh, in the U.S. Um, where people are, feel that they, they shouldn't be limited in the amount of hours they're doing because they're still trying to go toe to toe with the Cokehead. head. Um, it's not smart. I think... In business, a lot of businesses now are starting to understand a lot more about this kind of thing with sleep. Um, Every piece of research that has been done has shown that uh, employees which are underslept take on a lot less challenges uh, in their work and will try and seek out anything they can do which is um, low grade and doesn't require much of their effort because they're asleep. They're much more uh, likely To engage in what's um, known as social loafing which is the fact that they will just basically ride on the skills of somebody who seems to be working hard and just kind of be the, the the cheerleaders in the background rather than throwing in creative solutions and novel solutions to difficult problems how does this translate to the boat what this means is that you have a couple of people on the deck who are giving it their all and then everybody else is just kind of like chiming in just kind of you know that thing, like if you're married and you, um, you you develop like fantastic timing, particularly us guys, fantastic timing for getting up at just the last moment when all the work's been done and going, can I help? Like like somehow you're helping because you're on the cheerleading team. Um, the correct time to jump in is much earlier on when the thing needs doing. On board the boat, you'll get that, that people will just be kind of sitting there slowly you know click 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 rotating the winches and kind of looking at the sails a bit and maybe once in a while they'll trim a little bit um that's if you're racing they're basically useless they're they're you know you can be out cycling on a bike and doing big mileage you can be on a stationary bike with the wheels going around uh, and not moving at all and that's pretty much what people are when they haven't slept properly they're not more efficient they're not more productive because they're awake for longer Um, I liked in the interview that Matthew Walker did he said why would you bother taking twice as long to boil water at half the heat when you can get the job done in half the time at full heat and people who haven't slept properly are just at half heat that's the deal yeah their bodies there well done the husk has arrived on deck fantastic now we can all relax they're much more likely to be engaged in dangerous activity through a lack of um, you know, cognitive performance because they're asleep, they're much more likely to get involved in a situation where they mess something up and slow the boat down. Is the boat faster because uh, people are sleeping less or is it faster because you do your evolution smoothly, you do them cleanly? Look at the navigator, look at whoever's in charge of the Met. Trying to uh, do you know, meteorological calculations and work out what's going on. Yeah, we've all got computers that'll tell you which way to go, but those computers are only good as the person that's operating them and as good as the information that's coming in. How many times have I been half asleep and I'm actually dealing with the wrong grip overlaid onto my uh, onto my chart plotter or onto my computer and then made a decision about which way to go um, be based on crappy information, an old grip or I'm, I'm looking at the wrong time or I made some like simple basic error. I go on deck, you know, big big boat like an IMOX 60, it could take me 45 minutes to change a sail, change course and get going in a new direction. I then come back down below. I start looking at it and go, oh, Jesus Christ, I've got the wrong grip. Uh, and then I realise, man, I should be where I was. I've got to jive the boat back. I've got to come off the zero and come back on the jib. Like, do you really think that I'm just like, hey, I'll go and do that right now. I'm like, nah, man, we'll just go in this direction for a while. I'm boiling the water, I'm boiling the pot on, on, on half gas, right? And that's not smart. So um, interestingly as well, that research has been done looking at um, the performance of leaders uh, you know, in, in the business uh, workplace, your ability as a leader to to, to be in charge of other folks uh, is vastly reduced by not being able to sleep properly. The, the prefrontal cortex, which is that part of your brain which deals with you as a conscious, cognitive component of the universe, the rational decision making, the problem solving, that part of us develops last in the brain. If we start to become tired, then we start to regress to a more childlike, less matured version of our prefrontal cortex. It kind of goes on to it's like, um, uh, what's it on my computer? It goes, I'm gonna put you into like safety safety mode or something (laughs) like it's on, it's still a computer, but it's on safety mode and everything's like harshly black and white and it only does very simple things. You might be there on safety mode Um, with your prefrontal cortex shut down, with this more childlike uh, sort of state, basically uh, being in charge of your your processes. But the parts of your brain which are uh, more dealing with emotion, they flare up during this period of time where you're heavily sleep deprived or or on the edge of sleep deprivation. Um, So you've now got a child (laughs) in charge of the boat, awesome. Uh, A highly emotional child in charge of the boat, doubly awesome. And that uh, child's ability to problem solve and uh, and their uh, motor skills are also reduced. <laughs> it's like, this can't end well. And that's where you get really bad decisions from captains. That's when ships crash at sea. That's when um, you know you go, hey, yeah, absolutely. Let's send that guy at the rig. And then that person gets thrashed all around the rig or you make some tactical uh, error or you make some error, like you don't turn the gas off or all that stuff starts to happen, but the captain who is sleep-deprived is um, is a problem for a crew, and you have to really watch that. And there seems to be, again, this kind of tradition in sailing, a bit like the medical profession, I think. We're on deck, like trying to go toe-to-toe with with Nelson or with um, Admiral Nimitz or with, you know, pick pick your person, Paul Kayard or whoever's your... The person you think of when you're going to see, and you feel that you have a, a, an understanding of what they did. If they were a brilliant leader, the chances are that they are actually sleeping quite a lot. Yeah, you have no personal knowledge of how this person engaged in their business or engaged in their career. And um, if you are trying to like put on a performance of uh, Horatio Nelson or or whoever it is, Jack uh, Jack Aubrey or if you're trying to put on that performance, that's all it is. It's just a, a version of what you think that person acted like and how they. Oh, they're always awake. They're always on deck, and probably not actually. You know, they would. They for me personally, as I do more and more miles, that time off watch, I see that as being so important. I'm down that companionway fast as you like, and I'm into my bed as fast as you like because the time when I'm most tired is when I've just come off watch and the likelihood is that those people who are coming on watch are like awake and alert and know how to do things, their period that they're gonna be at their best will decrease over the next two or three hours. So I wanna get my sleep done as fast as I can because the most likely time they're gonna wake me up, (laughs) computers, I hate computers, Um, because the most likely time when they're gonna come and wake me up is towards the end of their watch and I need to make sure my sleeping's done. I don't want to be going down and spend another half an hour messing around with the nav and another 25 minutes messing around with something else when I could be sleeping, because all that's going to happen is I'm going to take that half an hour, then I'm going to go to sleep, then they're going to wake me up in the last hour of their watch. So um, it is imperative that the captain uh, gets as much sleep as they can to be at their very best to provide their crew with the leadership and with the management that they deserve. So yeah, as, as captains don't, don't think that you're walking the decks with your arm tucked in your jacket like, like Nelson, because uh, Nelson was probably uh, fast asleep in his bed. Okay, so as we come into the end of this, the thing I wanted to finish up with is that, um, what we need to understand is that sleep is not a renewable resource. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, all of the research shows that whilst humans, of course, can stay awake for long periods, we've all done it, um, we are not physi- physiologically set up to handle it in any way possible. And the research that has been done on this stuff um, by people like Matthew Walker um, shows that just going down to four hours sleep uh, for one night can show a dip of up to 70, 70% 70 reduction in critical anti-cancer immune cells. Um, These natural killer cells which are in our bodies which um, capture and take away and destroy the cancer cells which we produce every day, every hour of our lives, we're producing small cancer cells. That sewage system which operates inside the body is most operational when we're asleep. A 70% reduction in your uh, immune system in any way, shape or form is a serious problem. Um, Only having four hours sleep for one night, we can see that dip, or rather they can see that dip in your immune system's response. I think the thing that struck me most strongly when I looked at this research is the fact that every year, of course, we have daylight savings where in the spring uh, the uh, hour goes forward and then in the autumn the hour comes back. Um, this happens across, you know, many, many countries of the world. Millions of people, are, tens of millions of people, hundreds probably of millions of people, what am I talking about, are affected by this and that gives us a massive sleep research opportunity which has already been taken advantage of. The 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 numbers are already in and it's very very clear. In the spring when that hour changes and we lose that hour of sleep, there is a 24% in heart attacks around the world. And in the fall, where we get that extra hour, there is a 21% reduction in heart attacks. So now you could say, well, you know, it could be other things, it could be to do with the temperature, or it could be to do with um, I know the rigors of spring cleaning. No, it like, let us just wake up. It's it's because we suddenly have an hour's less sleep, and if you're already working on a uh, reduced sleep and sleep deprivation, that hour becomes critical. And then you, if you're sleep deprived and you get an extra hour in the autumn, then suddenly da da, you're feeling much better again. Okay, so there is no doubt when you have a piece of research where it flips one way and then it flips back the other way in almost exactly the same percentages, you know that you're onto something and it would appear that sleep is the major factor in all of that. What else can we say about this? As sailors, it's, it's very difficult, let's admit it, to, to go to sleep when the boat's out there and running and doing whatever it's doing. As the captain, it's very, very difficult for us to fall into a deep and restorative sleep for a short period of time. We don't do this all the time. That's what we have to understand about the differences between history and the modern day. When we talk about people on whaling ships setting off around the world, setting off from Nantucket, setting off from East London and from Nova Scotia, setting off uh, out into the Pacific to go and um, hunt whales and, and, and reduce the spermaceti into whale oil, they were gone for between three and five years. They were on a watch Uh, system and their bodies became used to it that is not to say that they uh, somehow negated all the effects that we're talking about now but in terms of getting sleep and getting rest and being able to restore themselves they were out there for much longer periods of time and they were much more likely to um, find some kind of natural rhythm which allowed them to exist uh, in that way when we're going and doing two weeks across the Atlantic or we're doing an overnight race with friends, or you have no build up to this. You have no um, special powers. You have no, as we've learned, genetic uh, predisposition that helps you in this. The thing which um, did come out through all of the research and all of the work that I've looked at from Matthew Walker is that our subjective opinion of how well we are doing with our sleep deprivation is just as flawed as the subjective opinion of somebody who's been drinking. Um, the uh, Somebody who has uh, not slept for 20 hours, as we've learned, is the equivalent of somebody with a blood alcohol level of 0.1%, which uh, where I live is legally drunk. So would you watch somebody drinking at the bar uh, get to a point where they were like, okay, I'm leaving now and I'm gonna go and get in my car. Clearly, their ability to make a decision about what is going on with their drunkenness is reduced by the drunkenness. Their ability of how clear they are is reduced by their drunkenness. Their subjective awareness of their mental state has been altered by the chemicals that they have taken in. Same thing with sleep deprivation. For a person who is sleep deprived, they are not able to make a good judgment about the level of their skills because they are sleep deprived and yet objectively, clearly the person at the bar who's been drinking for the whole evening is not in a safe condition to drive. He's not in a legal condition to drive on a boat. We seem to have like disconnected the logic circuits on that one. Uh, how many times have I done races where the owners of the boats are like on the helm for like hours and hours and hours. And really, unless they are like seriously skilled, like seriously skilled, the fact that they can, uh, they can handle a 30% reduction in their abilities and still be ahead of the rest of the crew. You've got some massive um, disparity between the captain's skill levels and the crew's skill level, if really a 30% uh, reduction in one person's skill level still equals better than someone who's well rested. So I think in sailing, we need to, again, it's a bit like the thing I talked about in a previous podcast of shouting. These, These methods that we have, these ways of doing things, they're not set in stone. And a lot of the stuff is like actually created in the modern world, in the modern cruising world. When you're talking about like Eric Hiscock cruising under sail, you're talking about the 1930s, the 1940s who were just getting going with what small boats are. You had at that time people who were coming onto small boats who were from big ships. Since then, we have a lot of people who are doing what they think it is that sailors do. And that's why, oh, you can't have bananas on board. You can't leave on a Friday. And you know, don't mention rabbits at sea and all this kind of stuff. Like it's all bunkum. Like it's it's all modern uh, tropes which have been mostly promulgated through through the media. Like changing the name of a vessel. Like do some research. Commercial vessels change their names all the time. They had all sorts of things on board the boats. If they could get their hands on a bananas, you, you think that crew wouldn't be taking it on as a snack if they could do it? The reason they didn't have bananas on the boats or didn't like them on the boat, and I'm doing my little air quotes here is because spiders tended to make their uh, nests up inside the bananas, and then they all got transferred onto the ship and the ship was a great place for the spiders. It's not because there's something inherently wrong with bananas, like wake up. So the thing with people staying awake for a very long time, it doesn't happen in everyday life. People don't just stay awake for like 24 hours, like willy nilly, but there is a lot of prestige around it. And we highly value people that seem to be able to do that. But are they really giving us the best result? And are we not actually just watching the pot slowly boil, you know? and also getting ourselves to a point where somebody's gonna make a mistake somewhere? So at the bottom of all this, what do I do? What do I do? If I am on my own, I recognize the fact that uh, I am more likely probably to want to sleep at night. When the nighttime comes, and the melatonin starts to kick in, I know that my biochemistry is gonna push me towards sleep. Now I also know that it's more difficult to see stuff at night. Um, It's more difficult to deal with complex problems up the rig at night. I can't see things in the water at night. So it's a more risky part of the day when the giant fireball in the sky goes around the other side of the planet. So what I have to do is I have to try and get myself ready for that. So I always do a really big uh, deck check at night. At night, that wouldn't be very helpful. A good deck check at uh, sunset, get out onto the deck, whatever the weather, really check everything, check the backstage, check the forestay, check the the furlough units, check um, halyards, check anything and everything I possibly possibly can. So at least as I go up to like midnight and one o'clock in the morning, at least I know the last deck check was six hours ago in full daylight. Next, I make sure that I eat quite early on in the evening probably just around sunset. I know I'm gonna feel a bit sleepier right then, and I try and have a, uh, a snooze around that time. Now, most commercial ships at sea will change their watches at around midday, around four in the afternoon, around eight in the evening, and around midnight. So the most likely time for somebody else on another vessel to be awake and alert to my presence as a solo sailor is when they're at the beginning of their watches. So if I eat my meal at around uh, sun going down, which is like normally like seven o'clock, eight o'clock, and then I go into my first sleep period at around eight, I should uh, intersect with when other people are most awake with what's going on around them. I mean commercial seafarers. So I go to sleep around then. Then I need to keep waking up all the way through. I am not in any way saying that this is a way of getting around the problems that we have with not sleeping. I recognize through my research, through looking at the stuff that Matthew Walker's put out there, that um, there I am damaging myself. There's no two ways about it. The question is only how can I keep myself safe and damage myself as little as possible? So I'll sleep after my meal all of those uh, carbs going into me. Remember we're eating between three and a half and 5,000 calories at sea when you're doing solo work on the bigger boats. I'm gonna feel tired then, so go for it, go to sleep. And then back up and back awake by around 10 o'clock. Now I have gone down below and I have slept for 20 to 30 minutes and then an alarm goes off. I look at all the radar stuff and everything. I go on deck, I look and I go back. That is such a automatic part of my life at sea now that sometimes I'm not sure if I'm awake or asleep. I don't think in any way that I am doing a 100% job of being the lookout uh, on those circumstances. I have my active echo going, which tells me if I'm being scanned by another vessel. I have my um, guard zone set on my radar and I have the watch keeper function on. I have all the other alarms on. So basically it'd have to be an unlit, uh, non, well not unlit, no that's not, that's not fair. It would have to be a target which the radar couldn't see And it would have to have no IAS contact and it would have to have no radar of its own for me to be able to hit it. Now, there's plenty of stuff like that. But we're talking about the danger I put myself in and then the danger I put other people in. I can limit the danger I put other people in. That's the moral imperative. And then secondly, I need to limit my own uh, uh, danger with being asleep. So I go up and I look around. I can make judgments about other lights. I can make judgments about other squalls. I can make judgments about... Is there fog? Uh, I can make judgments about sea state. I can make basic judgments about the boat and I know that that's basically all I can do in that. It's like a, a half look, There's, I'm being realistic. There's no way that I'm 100% giving it my all. It's not that I'm at like 30% operational. Uh, sorry, it's not that I've got 30% reduction in my ability. The half awake version of me that goes up and looks out the window is about 30% useful. I uh, sleep with my, uh, now where I am on the boat, I can have a clip which is long enough which goes out the door, clipped on in the cockpit and comes all the way in and comes and actually clips onto me where I sleep. So I get up, already clipped to the boat, I go outside and look knowing that it's about 30%. If I see something which is like a problem, then I need to stand and start bringing myself into wakefulness. And then I have checklists for everything I need to do. If I need to jive, I have a checklist. If I need to tack, I have a checklist. If I need to go on the foredeck and change something, I have a checklist because if I don't, then I'm going to run up against the fact that I don't exactly know what I'm doing because my prefrontal cortex is shut down. I'm highly emotional. Um, and my ability to engage in this high-level activity that I've chosen to do is vastly reduced. I'm forever taking uh, awareness of that at onto the boat with me and and trying to operate it. After midnight, there should be a new watch and all the commercial ships are around me if you kind of take my uh, meaning on that. I make sure that I uh, drink fluids as much as I can. So again, we try and help my body in getting rid of all of these waste products. And I'll go into another sleep period then, which would be about another two hours, something like that. And I'm gonna be sleeping and waking and sleeping and waking through that every 20, 30 minutes. And then by about four in the morning, um, I'm gonna start getting a, a feeling for the fact that I, I may well have slept enough because my other sleep period is from about 10 in the uh, morning till midday, and then have someone to eat and have someone to drink, and then go to sleep again in the afternoon. I will then nap as much as I can. They call it prophylactic napping, just trying if I do something really heavy like grind the mainsail up or whatever. Then I will uh, literally lie on the deck for 20 minutes and then get back up again, just to help my body flush everything as much as I possibly can. So, I give a huge amount of time and effort to um, to, to sleep, and you may agree or not agree with how I do it, but here I am, and you know, still in one piece. Touch wood. I was interested. I was approached by a group uh, here in Canada that wanted to um, do some uh, research on my on sleeping and all the rest of it. And I think I naively at the beginning of it, it was a couple years ago and I thought, oh, this is great. They want to learn more about my superhuman capabilities so that they can you know, push forward sleep research. And unfortunately, I realized in the end that that's not what's happening at all. They already know from all the research that I am damaging myself really badly. They just want to watch the process so that they can reinforce the information they've got. And so they can learn as much as possible about how not to do things. So when I realized that, <laughs> it was kind of like a, ew. So yeah, I, I, I'm i very aware of sleep as a performance enhancing uh, option. And I'm very aware of it as the most likely time I'm gonna kill myself is when I'm half asleep. So I take it very, very seriously. Uh, when I'm with a crew on a boat, I, I've, I've uh, got a few things I guess I can say about that. I've been doing it for a couple of hundred thousand miles. Um, it's real simple, I used to do four hour watches, uh, I now do three hour watches. I do three hour watches, if we have got two, two watches, they're three hours down, they're three hours up, or you can do it with three watches, they're three hours up, they're six hours down. Um, I have found that for people jumping onto the boat for a short period of time, that is a much better sleep regimen. People are able to drop into that much more easily. You can see uh, over a period of time being on the boat, You know, if four hours is better, three hours is better, six hours is better, three hours, For most people jumping onto a boat who are not professional old world seafarers, they can handle that and they can get into that and they can enjoy it. They can drop into deep sleep after about 45 minutes uh, in their bed and asleep. And they can go through about 45 minutes of a sleep, deep deep REM and then deep uh, sleep, a restorative process. And they are coming back out of that at about two and a half hours, two hours 45. And then they are awake and alert and feeling good and ready to go. Um, I don't do any kind of dog watches to rotate people through the watches. Um, People need to have some kind of regularity. A lot of the times when people say, oh, I don't see the sunrise, it's because they don't live on a boat. They don't live at sea. And so they have a kind of like semi-romantic desire to see the sun go down and they want to see the sun come up and take some pictures and tell their friends about it. That's fine. If you want to pander to that, that's completely fine. I'm just worried about safety. And I'm worried about because we do a lot of racing, I'm worried about performance to get the best safety and get the best performance. It's better to keep people on some kind of pattern. And so they know when they come up, the sun's going to go down during their watch. And then they know they're going to do two watches, you know, in the darkness or whatever the deal is. Um, They know what that is. And then they can run some kind of like awareness. If you want to engage in a psychological experiment of disconnection of expectation, um, the military do that all the time to... um, disconnect you from goals and just make you kind of work and just keep dig 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 that's what they want you to do um if people don't know if they're going to be awake or asleep there's sun coming up some going down you know when when do we get up what time is it it starts to really unnerve people and it starts to um affect them quite a lot uh over long periods of time i notice when we do short races um if people are not kind of like controlled somewhat like we do races like in the Caribbean and the starts will be around 10 or 11 o'clock and everybody wants to see the start. And normally like say Antigua, we set off, we go off around, um, Man of War and then out towards Green Island. And people want to see that they want to be involved in it. But if you don't push them, they will just literally stay awake until two in the morning. And then they all crash. And then the whole performance of the boat, the safety of the boat goes into a nosedive. So you have to get very, um, forceful as the captain's saying, no, look, you know, it's three o'clock, you've got to go to sleep, you've got to go through sleep till six o'clock. And then uh, then you're going to get to wake up again. And then you give me three on three off. And then everyone will get into it. But if you don't force them into it early on, they will just stay awake. And then you have this massive crash. Overnight races are the worst, because everyone thinks they can just stay awake through the whole thing. And they don't even realize because their are subjective awareness of how their performance is affected by sleep deprivation. They don't realize how dangerous and how crap they are at three o'clock in the morning. Um, I think the other thing I'd add is that um, make sure, of course, that you know that you don't uh, run your own alarm on your watch. Um, They can wake all sorts of people up and that kind of like personal thing of like, have I missed my alarm? Have I missed my alarm? That all the time is playing on your mind. You can't get into deep sleep. The person who is doing the waking up is responsible for the people waking up. You can't put the responsibility for people waking up on those people who themselves moments before were asleep that's ridiculous the the person who's doing the waking up goes down 15 minutes before they do the log they wake people up they monitor the people that are waking up and they make sure that those people come you know in, in a in a in a in a safe and a, a emotionally kind of like supported way come back to consciousness And that they have the right gear on and that they are, you know, safe. That people get out of bed and start trying to put jackets on. They've disconnected themselves from the boat. They're not holding on to anything. They're unaware of the fact that they're in rough weather and then they go flying across the room. That is the responsibility of the person who does the waking up. You are responsible from the moment you go down until them being on deck for hustling and chiding them along. And if you forget to wake people up and then it's five minutes before the watch change, it's... Tough luck, you still have to give them 15 minutes. You have to be better organized on the deck, you're meant to be the awake one. So I think management of sleep, awareness of sleep, on board the boat can increase performance if you're racing, can increase enjoyment if you're cruising, and increase safety, whatever you are doing. If you're on your own, you need to be critically aware of it and you need need to really have a plan of how you're gonna deal with this thing you have to do. Because if your plan is, I'm fine, I'll sleep when I'm dead, that may come a little bit earlier than you are expecting. Right, I would urge anybody to have a look at the Joe Rogan podcast where Joe uh, interviews Matthew Walker. It's number 1109. If you have something like a Google or an Alexa, remember you can just add, ask for podcasts on that. The other thing is to have a look at his book which is called Why We Sleep. That's Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And, you know, if you've got, like, some really strong opinions on what you've heard here, then go and do the research, go and have a look at it, and then come back and write to me and tell you, tell me all about it. Like, I've been super interested to learn about this stuff over a couple of years now, but I would point you towards um, uh, a Wikipedia page, which I found, which is called Medical Resident Work Hours, <laughs> okay? And it has some pretty amazing uh things in it which um let me just read a couple lines from it he says uh, effects on health effects of sleep deprivation on residents the evidence for harm to people who are deprived of sleep or work irregular hours is robust scientists don't say like it's dead sir they say things like it's robust research from europe and the united states on non-standard work hours and sleep deprivation found that late hour workers are subject to higher risks of gastrointestinal disorders, cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, miscarriage, preterm birth, and low birth weight of their newborns. It has also been shown that slow wave sleep assists in clearing out toxins that build up during the day. Consequently, the disruption of slow wave sleep increases the level of amyloid beta, a protein aggregate commonly found in Alzheimer's, present in cerebrospinal fluid the following morning. Chronic sleep deprivation and the resulting fatigue and stress can affect job productivity and the incidence of workplace accidents. There are also social effects. Married fathers in the United States who work fixed night shifts are six times more likely than their counterparts who work days to face divorce. For married mothers, fixed nights increase the odds by a factor of three. So Wikipedia may or may not be your chosen source of information. I don't think that on this occasion, it's a political decision what they've written there. There are a lot of citations in that. There is no doubt, people, that uh, not taking awareness of sleep is extremely bad for your health. So if you've got any thoughts on this, I'd be very interested to hear them. This has been a revelation for me learning about this in the last couple of years. It has fundamentally changed the way I speak about sleep, the way I go to sleep, I have now discovered that midnight actually means the middle of the night and doesn't mean uh, the last moment for me to be checking the virtual regatta or Facebook or Facebook marketplace or whatever it is I'm doing. It's actually meant to be the middle of the sleeping period. So who knew, hey? So yeah, any thoughts on that? Put them to CSMTheMariner at gmail.com. I love getting the emails and very often read them out and then we'll go through them in the questions and tangents episode later in the week and uh, have a... Get a feel for what you think about this. You got any experiences of sleep being dangerous, uh, sleep being a, uh, a negative effect on a boat, or is there anything positive that you've got from, uh, from sleep deprivation? Some people find it to be very creative time of the, of, the, of the day when they're sleep deprived and they can get more things out of that um, reduced function of their prefrontal cortex that reduces them to a, a, a child. <laughs> yeah, it sounds awesome for creative things. Doesn't sound so awesome if you're in charge of a boat. So we come to the end of this. I hope wherever you are and whatever you are doing, you are safe and that you are sound and that you sleep soundly tonight and uh, wake up with less uh, amyloid beta in your cerebrospinal fluid. (laughs) And you'll get that if you sleep between seven and nine hours. All right, I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers.